I married Kathy, my wife. She lived two blocks from me. I knew her almost my whole life. I went to school with her older sister because I was older than Kathy was. And so I knew this family very, very well. She lived two, two blocks away. All of a sudden, she became old enough to date, and I noticed her. And so I phoned her up, asked her if she'd go out with me. She said yes. I had to go over to the house to pick her up. And so I went over to the house. I knocked on the door. Her father came to the door. He knew all too well who I, am, who I was. Just for the record, he didn't like me then, still doesn't like me today. <laughs> and so I'm standing at the door, and I said, hello, is Kathy in? He took a long look at me, and this is what he said to me. He said, wouldn't you rather go out with her sister, Pat? She's more your age. <laughs> to which I said, sure, I'm good with either one. <laughs> Welcome to Church of the Rock from Winnipeg. Stay tuned to this week's thought-provoking message from Pastor Mark Hughes. Well, today we're starting a brand new series called Family Fortune. How many of you love game shows? Well, you're going to be disappointed because this has nothing to do with that. You know, when we think of family fortune, I'll tell you what we mostly think of. We think of these wealthy families like the Rothschilds and Rockefellers and Vanderbilts that, you know, pass their considerable wealth down to the next generation and next generation. Well, that's not what we're going to be talking about today. Let me just tell you right at the outset what my thesis is, and it's this, is that your family is your true fortune. And we're going to kind of cover that over the, the next few weeks. Uh, let me ask you this. How many are familiar with the Broadway musical or the movie Fiddler on the Roof? How many of you know this? Most of you, many of you know this. And of course, the, the, the star in it is Tevia. Uh, here's the picture from the movie of Tevia. And uh, Tevia was a Jewish man living in Eastern Europe some time ago. And uh, he's wrestling with life. He's uh, a family man. He uh, is the milkman in town. And he delivers by horse and buggy uh, milk to the townspeople. And the signature song of Fiddler on the Roof is, if I, were a, if I Were a Rich Man. And in this song, Tevye daydreams what it would be like if he was rich. And he imagines this, he would build a great house and it would have a long staircase up and an even longer staircase down and a third staircase to nowhere just for show. He says that all of his problems would be solved and he would be happy and for some strange re reason he thinks if he was wealthy he would be smarter. I don't know about that, he'd have to ask Donald Trump that one, not sure <laughs> what that all means. And then he says this, if he was only rich this is what he would do, he wouldn't have to work hard but all day long he'd bitty bitty bum if he were a wealthy man. All day long he'd bitty bitty bum. Now, i got to tell you something. I don't think that's the most noble goal in the world for one's life, is to biddy-biddy-bum. I have done my fair share of biddy-biddy-bumming. I am sure you have done your fair share of biddy-biddy-bumming. I know people, I would describe them as biddy-biddy-bums. And I want to tell you this, and I think you all know this, that it wears thin pretty fast, doesn't it? Why? Because we were created for a purpose. We were created for something bigger than to biddy-biddy-bum. 
And so at the end of the song, which incidentally is a prayer to God, if you know the lyrics, and at the very end, this is what Tevye says. He said, would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy man? And the answer to that question is, maybe. Because when you look at Tevye's life, he's actually longing for something he doesn't really want, probably doesn't really need, because he actually already is a wealthy man. He's got a job that he loves, he's got a, a, a lovely wife, and he has five beautiful daughters. And he has this amazing family, and sure, he's got problems just like every other uh, family, but what he is dealing with is he's dealing with, with this issue of, of pining for something else when really his great wealth is right under his nose, and his great wealth is his family. I think Fiddler on the Roof, even though it took place in another time and another place, I think it's a bit of a metaphor for our world, where we're always wanting and needing something, and we fail to recognize that the true wealth that God has given us is right under our noses. So that's my introduction to the entire series. And now what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a sharp right turn, and I'm going to go off in a kind of a, a direction that might seem a bit surprising. And let me begin by saying this. Tevye's biggest problem was he had a wife and five beautiful daughters, three of them were of marrying age, and his big concern was who are these three daughters going to marry? And when you were a parent, and some of you know what I'm talking about, and when you were a single, the big concern is who is the spouse? It is the biggest decision you make in your life. The car you drive, the house you live in, doesn't matter compared to the spouse you pick. You better pick the right spouse, right? Because that's the biggest decision you make. You're going to spend the rest of your life with that person. So what I'm going to talk about in the rest of this uh, message this morning is I'm going to talk about singlehood. You said, I thought this was about family. It is. Where do you think a family starts? Just take a wild stab at it. A family starts with two singles who come together and start a new nuclear family. Remember the old conundrum? You've all heard it. What comes first, the chicken or the egg? I say, well, that's an unanswerable question. Well, let me answer that question for you today. What comes first, the chicken or the egg? Neither. Chickens, plural, come first. Rooster and hen, then egg. <laughs> that's how it works. This is not complicated stuff. Aren't you glad you came to the Discovery Channel at church this morning? So we're going to talk about singlehood today. And here's the thing. Every single one of us has been a single at one time. Right? Every single one of you. Some of you are still singles today, but every one of you goes through. It's part of every human journey is to be a single. But here's the big surprise. St statistics are now telling us that 51% of all North American adults are single. Single, divorced, or widowed. It's now the biggest single demographic in our culture. Yet, for some strange reason, the church has seemed to ignore this huge group of people. Not our church, we're awesome, but most churches, <laughs> most churches, are, we have a singles director in our church. We have a singles ministry in our church. We do singles conferences in our church. Why? Because we think singles are important. In fact, last year we did a singles conference. We brought in Dennis Frank. Dennis Frank is exclusively ministers to singles. That's his ministry and his career. And when he was here, he cracked me up. Because every time he mentioned Jesus, he added that he was single. And this is how he would pray. This is exactly how he prayed. He said, and we pray in the name of Jesus, who was single, amen. 
every time he mentioned Jesus, he mentioned that he was single. And uh, here's what you discover. As you begin to read the scripture, you find out that some of the amazing people and amazing stories that you know and that we preach about and that we talk about and study were actually single people that God used in a mighty and an extraordinary way. And of course, you know, Jesus is the most obvious example of someone who was single, but so was his cousin, John the Baptist. We look at the disciples. We actually know this from reading the gospel that Peter was the only one that we know for sure was specifically married. The rest of them likely, if not all of them, most of them were single. And it was a good thing too because they were never home, right? So it was probably a good thing. Notwithstanding Jesus, who would you say is the most famous single in scripture? Paul, of course. Because he talks about it. And he wrote a whole chapter on singleness. And it's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. A chapter you should all read if you're single. Or you have children who are singles. And here's what I'm going to tell you. What Paul thinks about single. He thinks it's awesome. He thinks being single is the greatest thing since sliced bread. You go read it. You think he really likes being single. He says I wish you were all single like I am. He says if you want to go get married. I'm paraphrasing here, by the way. He says, if you want to get married, go ahead, knock yourself out. It'll be fine. It'll, it'll work out. But if you want to be single, boy, you've chosen something. And then he tells us, 1 Corinthians 7, 33, he tells us why he likes being single. These are his words, not mine. And he says, the good thing about being single is you don't have to spend all your time pleasing your wife. Who'd want to have to do that? He, he's like the guy that took his wife to marriage counseling because they were struggling in their relationship. And the marriage counselor turned to the husband and said, so tell me, is your wife hard to please? He says, I don't know, I've never even tried. <laughs> so we have this picture of this single guy who loves being single because he can go and he can serve God and he can advance the kingdom and he can travel and he obviously is very comfortable with who he is. He actually extols the virtues of singlehood like no other person in scripture. Now I know that, like I said, you should go and read 1 Corinthians 7. You should go through it. I do not have time to go through uh, the whole passage, so I'm not going to. And so what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to, I'm going to give you the five questions that I hear again and again and again from singles, young people and, and older people alike. And so here, here they are. We're going to go through them. And I'm going to do it just so you know, just going to warn you here. I might do it slightly sarcastically. I, sometimes that comes out of me. There's really nothing I can do about that. And so, so here it is. Here's the first question. Question number one is this. What should singles do about sex? Answer? Nothing. Nothing. This is, this, is, this is what Paul says. He says, look, if you're single, you need to flee sexual immorality. And you need to flee youthful lust. And this is what we know. And I've got to tell you this. Because our, our culture doesn't realize this. That sexuality, sexual involvement, is the exclusive domain of marriage. That is where it is to be. That was what it was created for. And I know in our culture it's exactly the opposite. We look at sexuality amongst uh, singles today and it's rampant and it's wanton and it's promiscuous. And they have all kinds of wild sex. If you watch TV and movies, anyway, right? And then they get married and never have it again. It's supposed to be. You don't have to own that, by the way, if you don't want to. It's supposed to be the other way around. 
Let me explain something to you. In the New Testament, we have this elaborate marriage ceremony. I mean, Jesus was at weddings, and you see a little bit of picture, and he talked about it. But in the Old Testament, particularly in the early goings, there was no marriage ceremony. And you know how you got married? You slept with a woman. Because when you sleep with a woman, then what you are doing is you are entering into a covenant with that woman. You know, there, Jacob had four wives. Do you know why he had four wives? He slept with four women. That's why he had four wives. Go read the story. It's exactly what happened. And see, here's what people in our culture do not understand about sex. Sex, the act of intercourse at marriage, is the blood covenant. And what happens is a man and a woman come together for the first time. The hymen is broken, blood is spilt, and they are entering into a blood covenant together. And that's why it was the act of marriage in the Old Testament. But now we live in a culture where people regard their virginity as something they want to dispose of. You hear young people saying, I want to lose my virginity. I want to get rid of this thing. And they fail to recognize that this was a gift of God so that they could enter into this blood covenant with their spouse on their wedding day. And for the rest of their life, they would live in this uncomplicated sexual life together. But that's not what our world looks like today. And we see people giving away, losing their virginity. Even Paul said this. He said, if you sleep with a harlot, you become one flesh with that harlot. And so when you look at sexuality, you recognize that there's a big problem in our culture. And we have failed to recognize that, that, that sexual relationship in God's design was not some recreation for singles, but was a gift to married couples from that wedding day on. So you say, yeah, but, but what if that's an issue for me? Paul addresses that. And he says, look, if, if this doesn't work for you, he says, if you don't have control in this area, he says, then get married. He says, it's better to marry than to burn. <laughs> what he means by that is, like, not burn in hell, although that could, could happen. Uh, <laughs> he, he's talking about burning with lust. And he says, look, if this is an issue for you, he says, then get married. That's good. You should get married. You should be one of those people who get married. But if it's not an issue for you, then, it, then maybe you could remain single like I am. That's an option is what he's saying. So it brings me to my next question. And the next question is this. How do I know if I have the gift of singleness? Answer, if you want to get married, you don't have it. I know this is deep stuff. You're saying, Pastor Mark, how do you figure this stuff out? If you, if you want to get married, you don't have the gift of singleness, for goodness sakes. I mean, obviously, there is a gift. It tells us. Paul tells us about 1 Corinthians 7, 9. And he says, you know, I wish you all would remain as me. But he says, you don't all have the gift. And he says, it's a gift, singleness. We've got to begin to look at it that way. But how are you going to know you have it? And it's so simple. If you want to get married, I doubt you have it. Let me tell you a little story I heard a pastor say one day, and it's always stuck in my head. It's a visual. You'll like it. And he says, this is the test for singleness. It's the self-test. He says, imagine, so you can all play along with me even if you're married. He says, uh, so imagine yourself, you're in a convertible. It's red. And the, the, the top is down. You're on a windy mountain road. It's a beautiful sunny day. The wind is blowing through your hair. You've got the tunes cranked up on the stereo. And now, first of all, imagine in the passenger seat a potted cactus plant. So imagine that for a moment. Now change the image and put in the passenger seat someone very attractive from the opposite sex. 
If you would rather be with the cactus, you have the gift of singleness. <laughs> now, don't misunderstand the point he's making, because some people say, well, are you saying single people are antisocial? I'm saying exactly the opposite. The single people I know are actually mostly more social than the married people. And they have very full social lives. They have a lot of friends. They have a lot of interactions. They're part of families. But they would rather not spend their entire life with one single person like that. That's just not a desire of them. That's the gift of singleness. Question number three. Here it is. Is there only one perfect soulmate for me somewhere in the world? Answer? No. That's ridiculous. I know my soulmate's out there somewhere. I hope they're not in Taiwan. Well, I mean, what would the world look like if you had one single person for you somewhere in the world? What if your parents moved to the wrong town? What if, you know, what if they moved too soon before you met the perfect person? You know, I mean, this is ridiculous to think that you could only be married to one single person. Here, this, you're not going to like this, especially those who are sitting there beside the perfect one, your soulmate right now. You could be married to any number of people. There is, there is, I would say that it's countless the number of people you can be married to. They're not off in some, you know, foreign country or some other city somewhere, and you're going to have to spend the rest of your life trying to find that one perfect person. Do you know who people marry? They don't marry the one perfect person. They marry the one closest the one in proximity. People marry people in their hometown, down the street, that went to their school, that went to their college. You marry someone nearby. That's who you marry. And so you will find somebody nearby. Your soulmate is somewhere nearby because you could be married to any number of people. I know some of you are going, oh, I don't know about that. Let me tell you a little story. I got, I got in a lot of trouble for telling it this morning when Kathy was here. And so now I'm going to have to ask for forgiveness. But anyway, here it goes. So, so Kathy, I married Kathy, my wife. She lived two blocks from me. I knew her almost my whole life. I went to school with her older sister because I was older than Kathy was. And so I knew this family very, very well. She lived two, two blocks away. All of a sudden, she became old enough to date, and I noticed her. And so I phoned her up, asked her if she'd go out with me. She said yes. I had to go over to the house to pick her up. And so I went over to the house. I knocked on the door. Her father came to the door. He knew all too well who I am, who I was. Just for the record, he didn't like me then, still doesn't like me today. <laughs> and so I'm standing at the door, and I said, hello, is Kathy in? He took a long look at me, and this is what he said to me. He said, wouldn't you rather go out with her sister, Pat? She's more your age. <laughs> to which I said, sure, I'm good with either one. <laughs> Did not play well with him. Did not play well with Kathy. Didn't play well with the sister. I'm just glad I married the pretty one. That's all I have to say. I got Rachel, not Leah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I tell this story just to point out that there's probably any number of people we could be married uh, to. And you say, well, well, I don't get it. Don't they have to be perfect? Are you kidding me? The biggest mistake you make is looking for perfection. Because if you find the perfect mate, why would they want to marry you? <laughs> right? 
And this is the whole story of Seinfeld, right? Have you watched Seinfeld? Did you notice Jerry, Elaine, Kramer, George, all single, single for a reason? And the reason is they can never find the perfect mate. There's always somebody wrong with them, right? Oh, she's got man hands. He, he's a close talker. She's a soft talker. She eats her peas one at a time. Who would want to be with a person like that? There's always some fault. And if you are looking for perfection, let me just tell you something so you're clear on it, that will be a prescription for singleness. Maybe you have the gift. It's not going to happen. You say, well, what are you saying then, Pastor Mark? Are you saying that I need, I need to look for compromise? No. You don't look for compromise. You look for compatibility. If I was to give you, give you one word that can almost guarantee, almost, a successful start to a marriage, it's compatibility. Meaning this. The more, this is what research has shown. The more common interests you have with your prospective spouse, the greater chance that has of succeeding. So, what does that mean? Common upbringing, common values, common religion, common interests, common goals for your life. The more of those things, they don't have to line up 100%, but the more of those things, this is what research has shown, that line up between those people, the better chance you have of that marriage succeeding. Well, how do they know if they're sexually compatible? Well, let me clear that up for you right now. <laughs> I'm not a gynecologist. But the parts all fit. <laughs> it's one size fits all. What more do you need to know? <laughs> Let me tell you something. You will have challenges in your relationship. That's just the way it is. There will be faults, and they may drive you crazy if there's too many of them, and that overwhelms the compatibility. That's why you look for compatibility. I want to tell you a story. How many of you are familiar with uh, Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People? How many of you know that book? He tells a story in it, and it's this story about a woman in his church. It's an old book, but he tells a story about this woman in, in his church that it, they're part of a woman's Bible study, <laughs> and these women, you're going to crack up. These women come up with an idea, and they want to be better women and better wives, and so they decide they're going to go home, and they're going to ask their husbands to give them six things that their husbands would like to change in them to make them better wives. Is this a dangerous question or what? <laughs> and so they all think this is a great and a brilliant idea. So the woman goes home and she says to her, to, to her husband, and tells him the story, and says, so can you tell me six things that I need to change uh, to be a better wife? He wisely says, let me think about it. I'll give you my answer tomorrow. The next day, this is what he did, and it's brilliant. The next day, he sent her half a dozen red roses with a note that said, I cannot think of six things I would change about you. I love you just the way you are. That's a wise man, eh, ladies? <laughs> so I told you a moment ago about Kathy and I's first date. I want to tell you about our last date. I mean, the last one we've had. And <laughs> I'm hoping it's not going to be our last date. The last date we had was on Friday night, this past Friday night, and we were celebrating our 35th wedding anniversary. And so I thought, I'm going to pull the Dale Kent Carnegie story. And so I gave her the flowers, then I told her the story I just told you, then I looked in her eyes, and I said, I can't think of six things I would change about you. I love you just the way you are.
And she just melted right there. I mean, I just, I don't want to brag, but I was amazing. And then I said to her, do you still love me? She said, look, I told you on our wedding night if I loved you. If it changes, I'll let you know. That part didn't happen. <laughs> Let's look at the last question. Here it is. Am I incomplete without a mate? Answer? No. no. That is so bizarre that people think that until they find that soul mate, they're incomplete. I'm incomplete without him. Really? What's missing? I, I, I understand. <laughs> I understand Adam saying that. He was missing a rib. There was a part missing. <laughs> but I don't understand you saying that. You know, we have these needy people. And there are these people going through life and they're not fulfilled and they're not complete. And they're half-empty half cups and they meet another half-empty cup. Guess what? Two half-empty cups makes a half-empty pitcher. Is that really what you want? You know what you want to marry? Don't marry someone half-empty. Don't marry this needy person that needs you to fill them up and feel complete. Marry someone complete. They are going to be a ball and chain, I'm telling you. That's not where you want to go with this. You want to find people that really are fulfilled in life. And when you find two people that understand who they are and are adequate in themselves, then you have a recipe for a successful marriage. But let me put it this way. Some of you may not be getting married. Some of you may not be getting married soon. Maybe some of you don't ever want to get married. And that's a valid option, like I was saying here. And that's why we have to understand that the most important thing about sing being single is to be complete and fulfilled as a single. Do you know who some of the most accomplished people, Christian people, in history were actually singles? And I'm going to throw a few pictures up on the screen, and you tell me who they are. So let's, let's go quick. This first picture is, who is that? This should be easy. It says at the bottom, it's Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> so I, I gave you an easy one by putting his name on it. Here, who's this? Heard it. Joan of Arc. Who's this? Ah, oh, that's Florence Nightingale. That's a little bit hard. Could be anybody. Who's this? Queen Elizabeth the, the first. Yep, single queen. Who's this? Yes, someone got it. Sir Isaac Newton. All I have to do is look at that hair. I don't know why he's not married. <laughs> Get a haircut, man. <laughs> and so, you know, I could give you scads more, and when you look through history, you realize there's all kinds of accomplished single people who are very comfortable with their gift of singlehood as Christians. I want to conclude with one story here today because I need to give you a more contemporary example. And it's a picture you'll all recognize. And here she is, and it is Condoleezza Rice. Condoleezza Rice, of course, look at her. She's a, she's a beautiful a highly educated, intelligent uh, African-American woman who was the Secretary of State from 2005 to 2009. Uh, she was considered for those four years the most powerful woman in the world. But what you might not know about her is she's never been married. She's now in her 60s. And while this whole thing was going on, no one could ever understand why she wasn't married. People did not understand this. And so what they were doing was they were always hassling her about this. Why aren't you married? Why don't you want to get married? Can't you find anybody? And they're always giving her this grief about it. She was on Piers Morgan. You all know Piers Morgan, and he's sort of an antagonistic how he, how he uh, interviews people. And this was the question that he asked her. He began by asking her why she wasn't married and why she hadn't found anybody to be married to, et cetera, et cetera. And then he said, let me, let me pose the, with, with one question. If you had the choice 
of being the first female president of the United States or being married, happily married, to a hunky NFL player. Which one would you choose? She looked at him like this, rolling her eyes, and said, I'm well past the age where I want to be married to a football player. And she says, I know people don't understand this, but she says, I am very happy with my life. She says, I love my career. She says, I'm a university professor. She has one earned PhD and 11 uh, honorary doctorates. And she says, I love my career. She says, the greatest thing in my life is I work with very, very bright young people and I expose them to the wondrous things in our world. And she says, I love my life and I love what I do. You see, that just appeals to me that this person, a single woman, understood that she was complete and fulfilled and was comfortable with her singleness. And the reason I'm sharing this, some of you, many of you in this room that are single are going to get married, some of you won't. And what you need to strive for is to be part of the family and the family of God and be part of this great journey together, complete in who you are in Christ. Because your family is your fortune. And building the family fortune has nothing to do with money. Let's stand together, shall we? Church of the Rock has services every Sunday at 1397 Buffalo Place, and we invite you to join us when you're in the Winnipeg area. If you'd like a booklet to help you understand more about God's gift of forgiveness and reconciliation through Jesus Christ, please contact us, and we'd be happy to send you a free copy of the Book of Hope. visit our website at www.churchoftherock.ca. Thank you for watching and God bless you.